Now, uh, turn with me, please, to Nehemiah chapter 2, if you're using one of the church Bibles, uh, page 485 should get you there. Uh, One or two words of introduction before we read Nehemiah 2. The slide is up from last week to try and place uh, the events of Nehemiah within some kind of historical context. Uh, You may remember if you were here last Sunday evening, we said that Nehemiah was uh, based in the capital city of Susa, uh, which is currently in the southwest of Iran that Richard prayed for uh, earlier. Uh, He uh, receives news of what was happening in Jerusalem, some 800 or so miles away And the news of the unrelenting opposition uh, experienced by God's people and their reaction to that uh, had caused him uh, to uh, break down in tears. He wept over the news, but he didn't stay in that uh, weeping position for long. Uh, That passion that he had for God's people for God's work and for God's glory was turned into prayer and he began to pray uh, that God would do something uh, for his people, for his city and primarily for his glory. And uh, that prayer went on day after day for something between three or four months. And in the course of praying, he discovered that he was going to be part of the answer to that prayer. God was saying, this is my plan, and this is the part you have to play in that plan. So we're reading now Nehemiah 2 from the first verse. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, When wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before. So the king asked me, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. I was very much afraid. But I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight. Let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. Then the king with the queen sitting beside him asked, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me. So I set a time. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of the trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so that he will give me the timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. 
And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down at its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool. But there was not enough room for my mount to get through, so I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back and re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know uh, where I had gone or what I was doing, because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, and Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you're doing, they asked? You're rebelling against the king? I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. Now, John Calvin wrote, Ignorance of providence is the ultimate misery. Ignorance of providence is the ultimate uh, misery. And the people of Jerusalem were miserable, despondent, and discouraged, due in part to their failure to be consoled by the past providence of God. Isn't it great? Ninety years ago, King Cyrus gave permission for the, the exiles to return. Oh, it's great if you call living in a building site great. 
Isn't it wonderful that the temple that had been destroyed was, was rebuilt 60 years ago? Oh, grandfather says it's a pretty ordinary building compared with the one Solomon built. But surely, surely you're excited by the fact that Haman's genocide plot to exterminate all of the Jews was foiled 30 years ago. Well, life here just continues to be one of unrelenting opposition. What a dispirited bunch these people really were. They had lost sight of their purpose, lost their spiritual inertia. They'd lost sight of God. And it's for this people and work that Nehemiah had been deeply burdened to pray. And this evening, uh, I want to consider the passage under three heads. Uh, Providence overcomes insurmountable difficulties. Providence does not suppress human activity. And thirdly, providence secures hope for the future. The first of these, providence overcomes insurmountable difficulties. Now, God's providence had maneuvered Nehemiah into a place where he had the ear of the king. He was the king's cupbearer. He was there next to the king every single day. However, there were a number of difficulties that needed to be overcome if God's plan for rebuilding Jerusalem was to be realized. First, a previous decision to halt the construction work in Jerusalem, and we find that decision communicated to the inhabitants of Jerusalem in Ezra 4, verse 21, that decision needed to be reversed. Secondly, Nehemiah would need to be released from the king's service to oversee the work. Now, go and ask your boss for a four-week sabbatical. And if he says, sure, take four weeks, uh, take four months, no, take four years. Well, actually, don't bother coming back. You have some idea that he doesn't place great value in your contribution to the work. But you'll notice from verse 6 that the king is asking, when are you going to return? How long will you be away? Uh, you're a valued, valued servant. Well, that was a decision that was going to be uh, made. It was a, a difficult one for the king to make. Nehemiah was a valuable asset. And thirdly, there were all sorts of practical needs uh, that were required to be put into place. You know, travel visas, ask you uh, to secure a safe passage, building permissions and materials for reconstruction and so on. Uh, the list uh, went on and on and on. There was a lot that was required and standing between God's plan and its realization stood Artaxerxes' ruler of the mighty Persian Empire. How was Nehemiah going to raise his concern? Oh, help. Where do I start? What do I say? 
And notice that God takes the initiative in verse 2 because the king asks him, why does your face look so sad when you're not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah, what's wrong? I want to know. Isn't it true that we are often anxious about raising important and delicate matters with others only to discover that God opens the door for us. And we think, why why was I so anxious? Why was I so worried? If God is in something, we should expect to see God at work. Calvin writes, there is nothing of which it is more difficult to convince men than the providence of God that governs the world. I wonder this evening, are you convinced the providence of God governs the world? Am I a victim of happenstance? Or am I the subject of the wise and gracious providence of God? That's a question worth working through. Now, resting in providence doesn't mean Nehemiah was fearless about his task. Look at verse 2b. I was very much afraid. Now, some super spiritual Christians would want to edit uh, that bit out of the verse. Uh, No, we we can't have Nehemiah confessing to fear. We want him to be a superhero. But God's word is wonderfully transparent, isn't it? Nehemiah wasn't a super saint. He was fearful. And what was it? That made him so afraid. Oh, he is about to imply, note this, he is about to imply that the king's foreign policy regarding Jerusalem was all wrong. It's not a subversive city, it shouldn't be left in ruins. That edict of a former monarch to stop the work needs to be reversed. Well, and that news, you'll notice, is going to be communicated to the king, not through a leaked email, but in a face-to-face encounter. Your foreign policy is all wrong. Uh, You see, he could have been seen, Nehemiah could have been seen as siding with what was still on record as a seditious city. But that, that didn't daunt his courage Courage has been defined as being not so much the absence of fear as demonstrating faithfulness in spite of it. That's courage. And that's what Nehemiah did. Uh, And I found myself musing this week, was his faithfulness emboldened perhaps by Proverbs uh, 21 verse 1? In the Lord's hand, the king's heart is a stream of water that he channels towards all who please him. Isn't it great to know that? In God's hand is the king's heart that he channels towards all who please him. 
Well, you'll notice after listening to Nehemiah's heart concern, the king asks him what he wants. And and notice the order in verses 4 and 5. I prayed to the Lord of heaven and said to the king. He cried out to the king of kings, whom he knew to be in control, before he spoke to the king who thought he was in control. And his telegram prayer, lasting only a matter of a few seconds, was built on months of intercession. And so his daring list of requests tumbles out in verses 5 through 8a with real confidence. During those months on his knees before God, the assurance of God's purpose had grown in his heart. God wants the walls of Jerusalem to be rebuilt, and I'm involved in the process. God couldn't be frustrated. God's sovereignty was for Nehemiah not an abstract theological term, but a singular foundational truth on which this request of his rested. And notice that the king gave Nehemiah all that he needed, not because Nehemiah was a skillful negotiator, or because the king had a particularly benevolent nature. Look at verse 8. Because the gracious hand of God was upon me, the king granted my request. No matter how imposing and intimidating the obstacles, God had simply blown them all away. Now, the early church shared that kind of mindset. You'll remember the religious authorities forbade uh, Peter and John to preach the gospel. Uh, Pack up, fellas, uh, go home, uh, throw in the towel, you're wasting your time. And how does the church respond to that? Well, in Acts 4 and 24, we read them praying in this manner, Sovereign Lord, Uh, You're in control. Sovereign Lord, consider the threats and enable your servants to speak your word with great boldness. And at the end of that prayer, the place was shaken. The Spirit of God fell upon them. And they were equipped to preach with great boldness. I wonder if we trust a sovereign God to overcome every obstacle that seeks to thwart the advance of his purpose, be they threats of a physical nature, the issuing of work or residence permits, visas, the awarding of planning permission. I was thinking this week of the church in Larbert. You know, there's a councillor there uh, who is opposing the granting of planning permission for the building of a church. Well, when God's hand is on his people and on his work, God's purpose will not be thwarted. Uh, Someone tell the council in Larbert that's the case. Secondly, 
Providence does not void human activity. Nehemiah sailed through passport control at the Trans-Euphrates border. He had all the documents and stamps that were required, and he arrived in Jerusalem, you'll notice, with an armed escort. He hadn't asked for that, but the king gave him one anyway. The kind of protection that's associated with a head of state, you know, the big motorcade with the, the motorcycle outriders. Uh, and everybody in the town is saying, who's this? Uh, who's arriving? Uh, Who's this new governor? 514 tells us that uh, Nehemiah had that title conferred upon him. Who's this new governor? Uh, He was creating a stir. And folk in the street would be asking, uh, what's this new guy going to be like? Uh, Will he hit the ground running? Uh, Will he call a press conference? That's a thing to do. Make his attentions uh, abundantly clear. Uh, for new men in office invariably have, have a big idea they want to implement. Uh, what about you, Nehemiah? Tell us. Verse 11. Um, I'm off to bed, fellas. Uh, you're not going to see me for three days. What? He's off for three days rest. Uh, here is a man who recognized his need of downtime to recover from an exhausting journey, 800 miles, to seek spiritual refreshment, to pray about the next step. Where do we go from here? Downtime is an alien concept for some of God's servants. They are driven men. They treat exhaustion in God's work as a trophy trophy to be treasured. It's not. God doesn't drive his servants to pursue a short-term gain at long-term expense. This is illustrated beautifully in the Gospels. When the disciples returned from their first missionary journey, it had been a great success. And Jesus doesn't say, okay, fellas, capitalize on the momentum. Get back out there, win more converts, keep it going. No, he says, come apart and rest a while. You fellas need some rest. You need some downtime. Uh, You need to recover physically, spiritually, emotionally. God's servants are not viewed as disposable pawns, but as as frail children that stand in need of care. Uh, God is not the author of our drivenness. God doesn't work like that. Okay, what would Nehemiah do next? Well, we know he could mix a neat cocktail. He was the king's cupbearer. But construction work, that was something else. He hadn't even attended a leadership conference. How could he mobilize a construction workforce if he hadn't been to such a conference? Read what he did in verse 12. Uh, He switched into ninja stealth mode. 
he left the house at dead of night and secretly surveyed the outskirts of the city wall. Now, is that bizarre or what? Why not wait for the the official guided tour the next morning? Let me suggest three reasons to you. Uh, First of all, he doesn't want to be dismissed as a mere visionary, a man with an idea but clueless as to how to achieve it. Uh, Not a practical bone in his body. Didn't only want to be able to hold up documents, you see, to the populace to show, look, I've got planning permission, I've got a building control warrant, and I've got a guarantee of all the building materials that we need. Thanks to the king. Actually, thanks to God. But having done a site survey, He knew, he knew the scale of the task ahead. He wanted to be able to stand up and say, I've seen exactly what's involved. I know what you fellows are thinking when you say it's a difficult task. Yes, it's a great challenge, but it's not an insurmountable challenge. This is something we can do with God. Secondly, he's... By going out at night time, he is insulating himself against discouragement. If he'd trailed around with a retinue of the city elders, all he would hear would be, oh, it won't work. We've tried to build up the walls. The task is too great. The difficulties are too daunting. And on and on and on they would go. Now, God's work can lose momentum because vision and faith has been dulled by discouragement and unbelief. Uh, We saw that last Sunday evening in the Numbers Bible reading and again this evening. Despite the best efforts of Joshua and Caleb... The majority report of the spies returning from their recce in the land of Canaan spread discouragement among God's people and put the brakes on the work. Well, Nehemiah didn't minimize the danger of discouragement and he's saying, I want to plan against that as best I possibly can. Thirdly, Nehemiah wanted to starve the enemy of intelligence. During uh, World War II, thousands of posters appeared all over the country uh, that read, uh, loose lips sink ships. Uh, Try and say that quickly and you'll be stuck. Loose lips sink ships. Uh, And what these posters were doing were highlighting the danger of putting strategic intelligence into the hands of the enemy. Now from verse 10, we learn that Sanballat and Tobias were sniffing around, seeking to discover Nehemiah's intent. Now these were people who had no uh, love Uh, For Jerusalem, certainly no love for God's people, no interest in God's work. Indeed, it was in their interest to ensure that Jerusalem remained a ruin, 
remained a building site. And if news of Nehemiah's plans fell into their hands before a public meeting, they would have had valuable time to marshal all the arguments they could against him. And so while Nehemiah trusted in the providence of God, he recognized the value of both downtime and of strategic activity. Our third point, providence secures hope for the future. After Nehemiah's survey was completed, he published his plan and he challenged his hearers, verse 17 through 18. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in? Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we will no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. Notice that the first thing he does in verse 17 is he speaks of the disgrace that was theirs. God's people had lost their standing in the eyes of the world. Their crumbling walls actually provided ammunition, uh, not just literal ammunition, but provided ammunition for the world's ridicule. Shame on them. Shame on the God of Israel, the so-called super God uh, who looks after you, cares for you. Shame on them. Shame on their God. I want to suggest to you this evening that today when godless people see uh, church buildings gathering in a dribble of people for worship or sold off as furniture warehouses or even pursuing secular funding because their people have no stomach for sacrificial giving or when the church changes her beliefs in order to accommodate a secular society, then the world will not take her or her message seriously. And surely that's part of the church's shame. Surely that's part of our disgrace today. The world looks at the church and laughs. Laughs. A disgrace that dishonors God. Well, notice here that Nehemiah had no scruples about playing the shame card as he seeks to motivate God's people. Secondly, notice the way in which he points to the providence of God that undergirds his appeal. Verse 18, I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me. You see, they needed to hear that God had already been at work in their behalf. Uh, they're joining this process halfway through, if you like. God's already started. By holding up the 
written permissions for rebuilding and securing the construction material, all bearing the king's seal, he wasn't saying to them, hey, fellas, look at what a brilliant negotiator I am. You're so fortunate to have me. Nor does he crave a personal following. There were no promotional placards there reading, with Nehemiah you can do it, with Nehemiah you can do it, or little badges, buttonhole badges, bearing uh, those words. They weren't being distributed, you'll notice. If they could only grasp, this is what Nehemiah wants, if they could only grasp, that none of God's work is ever left half finished. Give me an example of the work of God at some point in history that has been left half finished, where God had said, well, I'm going to give up on this because I don't see the way forward, actually. I'm kind of stumped, you know, as as to, to know what to do next. I'm really stumped. Uh, not a bit of it. If only they could grasp God's work is never half finished, then they might be able to sing with Nehemiah. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. It's going on to a glorious conclusion. Isn't this the kind of argument that Paul is using, writing to the Philippians in chapter 1 and verse 6, where he says, being confident of this, being confident of this very thing, that he which has begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Christ. How many Christians there are who have argued, well, I, I made a good beginning, I think, but, but now I don't see how I can complete things. I don't see how I'm going to continue. Uh, I can't keep it up. I don't have what other people have. I can't keep it up. God doesn't ask you to keep it up. God is saying, if I've begun a work in you, I'm going to complete it. Be encouraged by that. Well, how did Nehemiah's hearers respond? You'll notice in verse 18 we read... Let's start rebuilding. Now, I want to suggest to you this evening that that, uh, the tone of that is far too passive. Uh, Preferable is the ESV translation, uh, which is, let us rise up and build. Here are a group of folks who are fired up with enthusiasm and they're wanting to start. Let's rise up and build. Thirdly, and I think uh, of greatest importance in the whole passage is to ask the question, what was it that awakened that contagious enthusiasm? Now, remember, these folks for years had breathed in the toxic air of discouragement and disappointment. Grumbling and moaning had created a disparate and a dysfunctional people. Past providences had failed to console them. But now, 
you can hardly believe what you're reading. There is not one dissenting voice heard. Nobody put up their hand and said, I've got an objection. In most congregations, there's somebody that will stick up a hand and say, I've got an objection. But there's none of that here. There are no reservations. Not one. In fact, they can't get to the tool shed fast enough. Uh, Where's that trowel? Let's get going. Where does this unity of purpose and passion come from? Is Nehemiah perhaps to be accused of emotional manipulation? Uh, You know how to work an audience, don't you, Nehemiah? Not a bit of it. Oh, he had shamed the people. He had encouraged them to see God's providence. But if we do not see the Spirit of God breathing, fresh momentum, a healthy enthusiasm, a united purpose into this people, then we are missing something that is signally significant. There are occasions, are there not, when men speak and people hear the voice of God graciously pressing them into his service. This, you will remember, is how Paul accounted for the vital work of God that went on in Thessalonica. In 1 Thessalonians 2, uh, 13, we read, And we also thank God continually because when you received the word of God which you heard from us, you accepted it not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. Now, of course, Nehemiah wasn't preaching here in the way that Paul preached in Thessalonica. But he was God's spokesman. He was was bringing God's message. He was opening up God's challenge to this people. And they never heard much of, of Nehemiah in what he was saying. It was God who was speaking directly to their hearts and their responses. We've got no option but to follow this voice of God. What an encouragement it is when the people of God say, let's rise up and build. When the dangers and hardships and difficulties are no longer viewed as insurmountable obstacles because they have been wrought upon by the Spirit of God. My friends, I think increasingly we need to pray, O breath of God, come sweeping through us. That's what we need, to hear the voice of God challenging us to do his work. But I want you to notice in closing that almost immediately uh, this enthusiastic response is made to Nehemiah's challenge. Up jumps the enemy like a malevolent jack-in-the-box. Verse 19, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem have one thing in mind. 
disrupt the work. With each fresh advance, God's work can expect to face enemy opposition. And that's a pattern, is it not, that repeats itself throughout Scripture. Advance opposition, advance opposition. It's one that we're going to see uh, opened up in greater detail throughout the book of uh, Nehemiah. When we as individuals or as a congregation are poised to take a, a step forward into fruitful ministry and surely the vacancy process is a case in point, then expect furious reaction, fierce opposition. There is an enemy opposed to the work of God. And the weapon of choice here, you'll notice in verse 19, is mockery and ridicule. Ridicule is aimed at undermining our confidence in God and in the work that has been entrusted to our care. You really think that without David Robertson, there's a future for St. Peter? Surely not. Nah. Uh, the congregation's going to crumble. Didn't you know? And the opposition comes to ridicule and to mock. We need to learn from Nehemiah's response in verse 20. The God of heaven will give us success. Now, he's not whistling in the dark. This isn't a display of wishful thinking. It's a statement of faith that echoes the psalmist words in Psalm 56. God is for me. Uh, we sung very similar words in Psalm 130 earlier this evening. And if God is for us, who can be against us? God laughs at the opposition, those who seek to oppose him. That's what Psalm 22 is all about. Oh, you've come to take on God, really? What a joke. Wait till you see what God can do. Nehemiah, you will notice, dismisses his detractors for the pathetic usurpers that they are. He knew that his people were not the victims of happenstance, but the subjects of God's gracious providence. And all who are engaged in the work to which God has called them can allow their faith to feed on the knowledge of God that has been provided in his word and to say with confidence, the God of heaven will grant us success. Let's pray. Our gracious Father and our God, as we bow ourselves before you this evening, we Acknowledge the constancy of your faithfulness in showering our lives individually and corporately with providence after providence, blessing after blessing. Forgive us that we don't adequately draw upon these experiences to bring great consolation to our hearts. We pray that we might hear uh, the encouragement and the challenge of your word to rise up and build, 
to commit ourselves to the work that you have laid to our charge and to do so in the supreme confidence that the God of heaven will grant us success. Hear our prayer for Jesus' sake. Amen.